Hi, friends. This is episode part two with Michelle Odant, the French obstetrician. You may want to listen to part one before you listen to part two, or you may just want to listen to this part. Your choice. Choose your own adventure podcasting. Um, okay. I want, oh, I want to thank you for giving feedback. Um, please keep the feedback coming. What's working for you in the podcast? What's not working? Um, it's from listeners that I have found tweaks through that were on iTunes. And, um, I just had someone write me about sound and I'm investigating that. So if things are not working or you have constructive feedback, um, I'm open and you can send that to us through the Sex Lab with Lara website. And um, I want to just use this moment um, to, yeah, to get on my soapbox. And uh, I, I've gotten, so I've been teaching at festivals this season, um, Shakti Fest, Lightning in a Bottle, and then we have Telluride Yoga Festival coming up in July. And a lot of my classes are women only. And my training program at the Artemis School is women only. And I've gotten some pushback, some emails from men lately regarding this. And I'm just going to be brief. I'm probably going to write a whole piece on this. But um, I, you know, and you can listen, you can view my library of podcasting to... um, hear how much I love men and and I consciously am doing episodes relating to men and men's work and their perspective um, and if you have any guests that you recommend in that realm send them my way please um, but anyways my classes for women are not meant to be exclusive of men um, and quite frankly when people are viewing that them that way I feel that they're looking through a very particular lens that um, is even hard to engage in conversation with um, because of course women need to gather um, and come together and practice together and witness each other and give each other feedback and support. And of course, men need that too. And I feel like the time and place we are in our world, um, we need to reclaim things as men and as women ourselves. Um, I think all of us are disempowered. And I think there's this huge shift um, happening and we're definitely part of it here in my community in California and you know so many wonderful teachers and leaders um, all over the world Um, but yeah those of us who are into our own evolution in service to the evolution of humans of the planet um, the time is actually to like know yourself and um you know if you're a man spend some time with men learning about sexuality talking about sexuality getting reflections and really figuring that out because um yeah that's where it's juicy right now i believe and there's also lots of forums for us to come together i'm just not offering that 
exactly in this moment, but I do work with men in my private practice. I work with couples and I'm bringing men into my training for women, um, for us to dialogue with and interact with. So that's my soapbox. Um, May we all just rock out with our bad selves in the way that we need to. And you don't have to feel left out because the women are gathering. Make your own gathering. Okay, lots of love. Enjoy. of the precipice, what will happen next? That, that's the question. Shall mm-hmm. we have a new awareness? Mm-hmm. Shall we die, uh, go this way or that way? Mm, that, uh, how to, to get out of this situation? Mm-hmm. It seems that our only hope, our only reason for optimism at the present time is the power of modern physiology. Only modern physiology has the power to reverse thousands of years of cultural conditioning. And a reason for optimism is to refer to an important scientific discovery of the second half of the 20th century. We learned something that nobody knew 50 years ago. We learned something through sophisticated scientific methods something that people didn't know when I was a medical student. We learned something simple, that a newborn baby needs its mother. 50 years ago, nobody knew that. Mm-hmm. When I was in the med- uh, obstetric department, Paris Hospital, 1953-1954, in si- six months there, I never heard of a mother who immediately after giving birth would have said, can I keep my baby close to me? Never. The cultural conditioning was stronger than maternal instinct. The midwife was doing what has been done for thousands of years, what she had learned at school, rushing to cut the cord, giving to the, ba- the baby to a carer. Somebody was taking care of the baby, according to the routine of that time. And while they were staying, staying in the maternity unit, Babies were in a nursery. Mothers were elsewhere. Nobody had thought that they might be in the same room. Mm. That nobody, we didn't know that, that a newborn baby needed its mother. And that was the effect of thousands of years of cultural conditioning. So we had to wait the 1970s, uh, the advent of emerging, fast developing scientific disciplines with sophisticated methods to learn that a newborn baby needs its mother. It started with the concept of, of a critical period for attachment between, mm-hmm. uh, between mother and baby. Suddenly new terms like bonding, nobody had heard of that before <laughs> that, bonding. Bonding mother, and attachment, mo- yeah. Attachment, people looking at the colostrum, early colostrum, they said, but it's precious, mm-hmm. according to tradition. It was harmful for the baby. Yeah, colostrum being the first... What baby can find in the breast immediately yeah. after birth. Uh, at that time, nobody knew that among humans, lactation 
can start during the, is supposed to start during the hour following birth. Nobody knew that because uh, breastfeeding has been delayed routinely for thousands of years. And others look at hormones, behavior, look at microbes, and so on and so on. It's how suddenly we learned through sophisticated scientific method that a newborn baby needs his mother. So how did you, yeah, how did you figure out that, what proved that or showed that a newborn baby thrives or does better or needs its mother? What what did that look like, that research process? uh, It's a combination of perspective. First, uh, there were observations uh, among mammals in general, concept of critical period for mother-baby attachment, and that inspired human studies. There were studies, particularly by American researchers like Marshall Klaus, John Cannell. They, they did what are called randomized controlled trials, you know, evaluating in a scientific way the effect of an absolutely new intervention, which is immediate skin-to-skin contact between mother and newborn baby. That It has to be studied in a scientific way. Mm-hmm, <laughs> that, mm-hmm. it, because it was so new. You know, wow. That, uh, so for, they were looking uh, at so, but, um, animals or uh, other mammals? That was inspired. Right, study. got it. But there were those studying behavioral effects of hormones. Started with estrogen, cholesterol. Uh-huh. Those looking at the colostrum. Those uh, observing that uh, among humans, lactation is supposed to start during the hour following birth. The immunological perspective, the antibodies going across the placenta. Baby need microbes coming from the mother. So it's a combination of perspective that suddenly uh, explain that a newborn baby needs its mother. It's about, but it's paradoxical. But we need a sophisticated scientific method to discover something as simple as that. But that's a reason for optimism. I wanted to talk yes. about optimism. Yes. If during the 20th century, it has been possible, thanks to so- sophisticated scientific method, to discover the basic need of the newborn baby. Basically that I summarize by saying the newborn baby needs its mother. Why not, during the 21st century, discovering the basic needs of laboring women. Yes. It's not completely utopian. So there are reasons for optimism. Uh, obviously, only modern scientific perspective, emerging scientific discipline at the present time have the power to reverse the effect of thousands of years of cultural conditioning that have put us at the edge of the precipice. Well, but we have the scientific data. Yes. It, it's all there. Yes, yes. And it's been there for quite a while, and you're responsible for a lot of that, I believe. But we have good data for the basic thing of the newborn baby. Everybody agrees that the newborn baby needs its mother. But until now, we don't still have widespread understanding of basic needs of laboring women. 
that's that's the next step right right because uh, because almost actually the very nature of studying birth is antithetical to what a laboring woman needs she doesn't need to feel be observed and studied while she's uh, in labor yes basically a laboring woman is not to feel observed right you cannot show a natural childbirth what people call a natural childbirth with a camera impossible that that's a good illustration of the widespread lack of understanding of birth physiology. It's the current epidemics of videos of so-called natural childbirth. What do you see in most uh, cases? You see a woman giving birth, bright light, very often bright light, Mm -hmm. three, four, five people around. So people who look at that, young people, young generation, who are conditioned by visual messages. Today we are conditioned by what we see. We are on the edge of videos and photos. Mm-hmm. They understand that the basic need of laboring women is to be surrounded by other people. Mm-hmm. What understand. So at the present time, we might say that uh, one of our main preoccupations would might be to neutralize this epidemics of videos of so-called natural childbirth. <laughs> Because they have uh, finally, finally, it's counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, what happens, or what is there scientific data that's showing what's happening on a cultural level for women? I'm just going to say exactly what I'm asking instead of trying to lead the question. Are we seeing that women are losing? the ability to have vaginal nat nat really truly natural childbirth is that is there a possibility of that being lost in the imprint that's a very important question the capacity to give birth mm-hmm. many reasons for such a question uh, one reason is to recall a basic law of life. <laughs> you know, there have been life on planet Earth for four billion years. And there is a, there is an important, basic, universal law of life. It's the concept of natural selection. Mm. It's through the mechanism of natural selection that life has been spreading out, mm, proliferating on the whole planet, everywhere. That it's a basic law, but suddenly, it started middle of the 20th century, with modern medicine, we have neutralized the laws of natural selection. Hmm. That's the first time in the history of life, for many years. F- we can give many examples. But because we talk about childbirth, is it to explain that until recently, a woman who had a good capacity to give birth, in general, she had many babies. A woman who could not give birth by herself, she was dying when giving birth. Perhaps finally she had one child. So that was natural selection. Mm. But today, the number of children per woman depends on other factors than the capacity to give birth. 
Women cannot give birth, c'est à de six sexes, that's not the issue. C'est à le nom, c'est le nombre de children that the woman who can give birth very easily. We have neutralized the laws of natural selection. Starting from that, any mathematicians might organize, establish computer programs to try to know when most women on this planet will have lost their capacity to give birth. It's just mathematical. Mm. You, you eliminate, you neutralize the laws of natural selection, we have to expect a reduced capacity to give birth. Many ways to explain the same. Uh, for example, uh, explaining that we don't need today the oxytocin system. In mm. uh, and when you don't, when a physiological function is underused, it becomes weaker and weaker from generation to generation. So, so finally, that's a, a main question today. Uh, we must say that there are good reasons to think that the capacity to give birth has already decreased, even compared with the middle of the 20th century. For people, my generation is almost obvious, mm. but that, that's not... That's subjective. No, it's not hard data. But there are some data that already suggest that uh, we have to look at this issue seriously. I'll mention a study published in American Journal of Obstetric and Gynecology. Very serious. They looked at two groups of births. First group were births between 1959 and 1966, nearly 40,000 births. And the second group were nearly 100,000 births between 2002 and 2008, so roughly 50 years later. And after adjusting, after controlling for many variables, such as the age of the mother, the degree of adiposity, uh, many things uh, uh, like that, uh, they found that the, in the case of women giving birth for the first time, the average duration of the first stage of labor was two hours and a half longer in the second group, 2002, 2008, hmm. compared with the first group, 1959, 1966. That can be a way to suggest that the capacity to give birth is already weakening among human beings. It's a big issue. This is an issue I just introduced briefly in the addendum of my uh, next book, published uh, July to officially July 2015. Uh, the title of the addendum is Can Humanity Survive Medicine? In fact, what the issue I'm introducing that when we consider how medicine has neutralized for the first time in the history of life the laws, the laws of natural selection, it's not just childbirth, it's in general. The question is, for how long can we go on in this direction. It cannot be, can, it, there are limits to this attitude. Mm -hmm. And obviously, ideally, if we are completely mad, we'd say the solution is to neutralize medicine. Uh, 
But nobody will dare to do that. Well, so, so it's a question. It's a question. Mm. We could have a world where every birth was a cesarean birth, right? That uh, a possible scenario, probable. It's uh, not utopian. In fact, it's one of the chapters of my next book mm-hmm. called Do We Need Midwives? Mm. One of the chapters, after looking at the point of view of several groups of people, <laughs> one, one is, but finally, this question is useless because the future is cesarean birth. So why to raise this question? Raise this question? So uh, it's a possible scenario mm. uh, for many reasons, including the effect of neutralized laws of natural selection, Uh, and many other reasons. Just look at the graph. You know, the, since the middle of the 20th century, the rate of C-section, since that time it has been growing, 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 growing. Apparently very soon it will be most women. It's already, uh, birth by C-section is already the most common way to, to have babies in countries like Turkey, China, many Latin American cities. It's already like that eh, in Greece and so on. USA is a country with a moderate rate of cesarean section. It's only at the present time from last figure I heard, 32.9%. So it's (laughs) moderate rate of C-section. It's like Germany, like Australia, New Zealand. But people must realize that there are countries with But higher rate of C-section. Recently, I was in Turkey, Ankara, at uh, the, the level uh, the, uh, of Turkey, the overall rate of C-section, private sector, public, and so on, is 52%. Mm. So, so we have to realize that it's not utopian to say in the future, most babies will be born by C-section. It's a, a possible scenario. Yeah, and is that problematic? But that's a reason to raise questions. Mm-hmm. And when you need to raise questions, it means that it's problematic. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, so let's talk about those the questions that it raises. Because what I would like to move into more about love and sex. So I feel like this is kind of a segue when we talk about, um, well, when we start to talk about the hormonal cascade and the attachment and the bonding and all of that, that leads into future relationships and how we relate as a species, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the questions that this possible future where every baby could be born by a cesarean, what, what are some of the questions that are raised? It means that in this case, There is one human physiological function that will be underused in a phase of life when it's supposed uh, to reach uh, an uh, intense, uh, high intensity. You know? So it's anex- the question is, what is the future of an underused human physiological function. That's mm-hmm. a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's serious because if uh, the oxytocin system become weaker, of course, 
it means difficulty to give birth, difficulty to breastfeed, difficulties for uh, for sex, uh, genital sexuality. But oxytocin is more than that. It's also all facet of love. It's also socialization. So it's a it's a huge one of the most important questions of our time. Mm. Probably, probably the most important question of our time. It's a possible evolution of Homo sapiens in relation to the way babies are born. A few people have understood that. Many people talk about the the future, changing world, changing society, uh, strategies to to face problems with climate and so on and so on. Many people are interested in the future, but that I don't realize that Homo sapiens might change as well. And the rest will follow that. We have to start from that. We should start from Homo sapiens. We should not start from uh, from society, mm. from a concept like that. Yeah. No, we should start from Homo sapiens. What, what kind of Homo sapiens will uh, be dominant on this planet in the future? And many reasons to think that the way babies are born is an f- important factor in the evolution of our species. We might make some analogy. You heard about bulldogs, <laughs> the race of, uh, of bulldogs called British bulldogs. In general, they have difficult birth. Mm-hmm. So they started to make caesarean section in the 20th century. Bulldogs are interesting because uh, between two generations, the time is uh, ten, uh, it's ten times shorter than among humans <laughs> between two generations. Two generations of human beings is 25 years, bulldogs mm-hmm. is two years and a half, something like that, so it's interesting. So now there are many generations of uh, bulldogs that needed a C-section to be born, and now the rate of C-section among bulldogs, some uh, British bulldogs, is something like 95%. Wow. And, and they have lost their libido. Hmm. Most bulldogs now are conceived artificially in artificial insemination. Mm-hmm. They have no libido. So it's just an analogy. analogy. Well, but that's fascinating. It's interesting. It's, it's, it's interesting because yeah. uh, to have the same number of generations among humans, we need many centuries. Mm. Right. So we have to be careful with that analogy. Yeah. But however, we have to think of it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that makes me think about, and, and this probably on a scientific level might be a big jump, but I'm thinking about the increasing rates, and sure there's various reasons for this, but the increasing rates of so-called infertility or difficulty conceiving mm-hmm. and how more and more humans are using artificial mm-hmm. forms of, of conception. Mm-hmm. Um, they're using science and technology to conceive. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be really interesting to look at that in relation to cesarean section. So, so this is kind of going to this interesting way of looking at the relationship between sexuality, reproductive function, genital sexuality, genital sexuality um, and birth. Yeah, right, links between all these issues, particularly links if we start from the concept 
of of uh, um, natural selection because that was a good example of the effect of neutralizing the laws of natural selection until recently a very fertile person in general had many children <laughs> and an un unfertile person had no children mm. today people who are very fertile as a roughly average the same number of children children of people who are not fertile mm. if they are not fertile they compensate that with uh, medically assisted conception if they are very fertile they compensate that with contraception mm -hmm. so finally the laws of natural selection are neutralized as well in this field. It cannot last very long. That's mathematical. We have to raise the question. Once more, it's not opinions. I, I always avoid to give opinions. Right. I explain reasons to raise questions. Mm -hmm. So that we must, at the present time, we have to provide reasons to raise questions mm -hmm. and to understand the importance of questions. You must stay in this field, you know, in this field. That, that's why I classify myself as an interdisciplinary student in human nature. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, in the questioning space, it allows for, um, for the investigation, right, and for things to be revealed rather than just stating an opinion, you know, going to the place of stating an opinion or thinking you have it figured out when, you know, yeah, there's there's lots to look at it and it's so complex, isn't all of it? It's very complex to just make general or, you know, conclusive statements would be irresponsible. What people right must now. constantly realize that when we are in an unprecedented situation, and today, whatever the topic, we are in unprecedented situation, the first thing to do is to phrase the appropriate questions. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, my next book is just about questions. Mm. Mm, question or constantly question marks. The question we have to raise today. Okay, so we're over an hour, and I wonder, I want to give you time between now and your next interview, which is in 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, but I would like to, if, if you're okay, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about love and relationship and genital sex in relation to oxytocin and those hormones and what well, to, to simplify uh -huh. what we can say is that it's easy today to understand the similarities between the different episodes of sexual reproductive life if you consider sexual intercourse, childbirth, lactations, it's always the same patterns and always the same hormones that are involved. So same patterns, it means that there is always a first phase quite passive. And if it does not di disturb, we talk about undisturbed physiological processes, at the end, suddenly, there is what I call an eject, ejection reflex, ejection reflex. So in the case 
of childbirth is fetus ejection reflex. Suddenly, irresistible series of contractions if you don't interfere at all. In the case of uh, lactation, is milk ejection reflex. In the case of uh, genital sexuality, there is a sperm ejection reflex. It's always roughly the same pattern, the same pattern, so similarities. And at the end, it's almost always roughly the same hormonal mixture, what I call an uh, orgasmogenic cocktail made in particular of oxytocin and endorphin. So that explains the subjective aspect of this episode of reproductive side, possibility to have rich ecstatic state or orgasmic state and so on. So that it's interesting to understand the, the similarities. That's why it's important to be not to be specialized. Mm-hmm. So, and it's an easy way for people to relate to because most people have sexual intercourse generally in the dark by themselves they're not doing it you know in front of doctors with lights on and people coming in the room and checking in and coaching them you know so looking at that like the natural quote-unquote natural way that we make love or have sexual intercourse um, if it's all the same systems happening yes what then the jump to what a woman needs in childbirth is not far at all, is it? Yes, yes. What there is one way to summarize what needs to be understood is that whatever this episode of our sexual life we consider in sexual intercourse, childbirth, breastfeeding, like. Uh, the oxytocin system is uh, always important, plays an important role. And if there is one thing people need to understand, and it's very simple, that a particularity of oxytocin, the main hormone involved in any episode of our sexual life, main hormone of reproduction, we might say, Oxytocin. The particulate of oxytocin is to be th- that its release is highly dependent on environmental factors. And one way to summarize when it to be understood is to say oxytocin is a shy hormone. It does like a shy person who does not appear among strangers, among observers. So this is still understood to a certain extent for making love. In general, people make love uh, in the dark mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, without any observe, no, ob- avoiding observers and so on in general. So, so it's still understood. Uh, it's not always well understood for breastfeeding today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I must say that uh, personally, I know that often when a woman has difficulty to breastfeed, particularly at the beginning, the best advice you can give starts from this concept of shy hormone. You say, stand a long time, as long as you can, in a small, dark room, warm room, dark room, door closed, <laughs> close the door, just you and your baby, 
skin-to-skin contact. And that will overcome many difficulties. In mm-hmm. such a contact, a small dark room, nobody around, warm, you'll have, you'll re- more easily release the shy hormone. Mm-hmm. And this is what has to be rediscovered where childbirth is concerned. After thousands of years of socialization of childbirth, we have forgotten that to give birth, a woman needs to release the shy hormone. If just people could understand that, it would be a step forward. Yeah, yeah, amazing, great. Um, okay, so you, your book, I found it on your publisher's site, pinterandmartin.com, and people can sign up there to find out about the pre-order, and it's called Do We Need Midwives? Mm-hmm. Great, and then your other recent book, which was, what, 2014? Yes, 2014, it was called Childbirth and the Evolution of Homo Sapiens. Mm-hmm. Great. The previous one, 2011, was Childbirth in the Age of Plastics. Mm-hmm. We are in the Age of Plastics. It means Childbirth today. And the previous one was called The Functions of the Orgasms. The similarities between different episodes of our sexual life with a Subtitle, The Highways to Transcendence, mm. with this orca- orgasmogenic cocktail. No? So there is a, uh, it's a way to have uh, subjective responses, ecstatic, orgasmic state, access to another reality than space and time reality, that the definition of transcendent emotional states. So why is transcendence important? Is transcendence important? Is ecstatic? Is is it important for humans to be able to reach ecstatic states and transcendence? It's an it's a, a particular of Homo sapiens probably to have transcendent emotional state. It seems that it's universal. It seems that all human beings, whatever the phase of the history, had transcendent emotional state uh, and that the root of religions religions channel uh, channel the access to another reality than space and time reality so different ways according to the cultural milieu uh, since the re- not neolithic revolution uh, with patriarchal societies a new understanding of the role of man in reproduction the seed so, uh, it's sure that it was been channeled towards monotheistic religions. The, mm-hmm. it's a, with uh, with a god, one god as a paternal figure, so mm-hmm. that was special to our societies. Before the Neolithic Revolution, it was channeled a different way, probably a different way. Mm. But the point when you look at, when you are a student in human nature, that you cannot study human nature without studying transcendental emotional states. It seems that they are universal. And, but uh, because they are organized, in general, uh, the access to transcendent has to follow some rules. You know, easy to control. For example, it's easy to control prayer, uh, uh, fasting, uh, music, and so on. Uh, it's difficult to, co- to control episode of our sexual life. Mm. So that's why, in general, uh, 
the ecstatic states associated with the different episodes of our reproductive se- uh, life or sexual life of our, of our reproductive life are not classified as a route, a road toward, toward transcendence. But they might be, in reality, the, the, the direct route. That's why I call them the highways mm-hmm. transcendence. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you so much. And how? what's the best way for people to find you and your work? Do, is it michelleodont.com? Do you have that? or? Uh, there is uh, sev- there are several ways. One is our database, mm-hmm. primary research database, studies exploring correlations between what happened bef- between a, a correlation between what happens during the beginning of our life and what happened later on. Mm. Primarhealthresearch.com. There is a website called womecology.com. Oh mm. yeah, womecology. Uh, one way can be to go to Amazon and <laughs> look at the title of my books. Yeah. <laughs> so there are many ways, not many ways. Great. Well, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to, to speak with you. I've learned a lot. <laughs>